0: This is an ABC podcast. Jackie Lambie is an Australian Senator. It's a role she was first elected to in 2013 and then again last year. It's fair to say that Australian Senator was not a future that anyone expected for Jackie, least of all herself. She grew up working class in Tasmania, dropped out of high school, joined the army and after a decade was medically discharged. As a single mum in chronic pain and with no job prospects, Jackie lost most of a decade to depression and addiction. But as she puts it, you can't keep a bloody Lambie down. When I spoke to Jackie at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival, she'd just published her memoir called Rebel with a Cause. that's
1: in Tasmania. Did you grow up? I grew up on the northwest coast of Tasmania. I've spent, um, apart from my time in the army, the ten years, um, my whole time was spent on the northwest coast. Uh, it struggles down there. We're like many rural and regional areas. You know, we have uh, a lot of people living on or below the poverty line, um, and you see that every day out in the streets, and it's quite very sad. We have our drug issues. We don't have the jobs down there. Our kids are leaving and going to the mainland. So, um, you know, it's most beautiful spot in the world. I know I might be a bit biased, but it really is. Um, You know, but it's certainly got, needs to come a long way. Who did you grow up with in your home? Who lived with you? My mum and dad separated when I was 13 and um, a bit like Barnaby, my dad couldn't keep in his pants. (laughs) Don't tell my dad I said that. would killed me. I haven't said that before. I need some new script. And um, so my mum, my mum is very independent and I love her dearly. My mum was a disciplinarian and all the rest. And she, even though we had open access to dad and he was never far away, we spent, um, you know, weekends with him and seen him during the week. But, um, yeah, it was my mum. And then when mum and dad separated, unfortunately, my mum had a bad back as well. And she'd been working in factories all her life. Actually, she'd been making your Sheridan Towers down at Tara Towers down there. So mum went back to school for three years. Um, That meant that mum had to go on a single mum's pension, which meant we had to move into public housing. So, you know, it's the only time I've I've seen my mum cry twice, once when she lost her own mum... And the second time was when she was trying to explain to us that, um, you know, that we were moving into public house because to her that was just horrifying that this is where her life had got and she was now having to move into public house and it was shame, you know, and, but I remember the last thing my mother said, it doesn't matter where we live, it doesn't matter where we are, the main thing is that there's always plenty of love in the house. I really look up to my mum. She's as independent as hell,
0: and uh, she
1: probably should have been the politician, but anyway.
0: Tell me a bit more about how your mum and dad met. Where were they? They all sort of grew
1: up around um, Tasmania. That's why I kept saying that's how I win my SEEK, that's how I get re elected. We're all bloody related (laughs) down there. Anyway, so, you know, my, my mum's still good friends with Dad's sister and brothers, and so it's all a really nice big mix. But they met there, and then they moved to um, Melbourne, and Mum used to work in, I think it was Allen's, Allen's Lollies, and Dad drove for a freight company, and he ended up working them for them just over 30 years or 35 years.
0: And your mum comes from a big family. How many kids in her family?
1: Yeah, so Mum's a little bit like the Waltons. They, um, you know, there was four from the first marriage, and she was one of 17. So, yeah, yeah, I wonder why uh, my grandmother passed away at an early age. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, so there was nothing. The stories that she'll tell you is that they are in a three-bedroom house at one time there was 14 kids. They were doing the top and tailing in double beds and, and things like that and that's how they they lived and um, so I think that's why mum's just so practical and independent. I imagine there would have been a lot, a lot of fighting for your rights in amongst all those children. Um, you know, so it was quite remarkable.
0: I think mum's the third youngest. You've got a copy of their wedding photo, your mum and dad's wedding photo in your memoir. Tell me about that picture, about how your mum and dad look. Dad's a little bit
1: like the Fonz. You know, he thinks he's pretty cool, my dad. Still thinks he's cool. He gets on bookface, as he calls it, because he likes it when I. <laughs> Gets better, you know. So he has this thing every time we are out and about. He goes, take a picture, because he gets all these marriage proposals, right? So it's feeding right into his ego. Anyway, that's good for him. But, um, and my mum, my mum was actually quite a bit of a hottie. She had the little mini dress on getting married. and yeah, So it was a really nice black and white um, shot of them together. So Dad's got all his hair flipped back like I'm sure all you blokes used to wear. And they still, even though they're not married, they still love each other dearly and they're still the greatest of friends. There'd be nothing for Dad to pop in there and have a cuppa or, or vice versa. Tell me about what kind of teenager you were, Jackie. Well, I thought I was a great teenager, but my mother thought I was a rebel from hell. Um, my my father and I are very similar. We've really got that Scottish that Scottish thing in us. I think growing up as, as a teenager, mum being a single mum, my mum, I was probably one of my girlfriends that never snuck out because my mum played a trust game. She'd say, you can go out till 10.00 and you do the right thing and all that but I tell you what, if my mother grounded you, there was no early bloody release. You did not get released until the day of release It was that simple So, um, you know, I reckon she would have grounded me. There were times when she'd answered the door and I had been brought home by the police and we went through all that. I'm, I'm sure that was a learning experience for her. Well, tell us about being brought home by the police I think you had your first run in when you were 14 or so. What happened? Yeah, so my first run in, I think, my Maybe I was fifteen. We're all at a party and we're all drinking passion pop and Stones Green Ginger. (laughs) Anyway, we got a bit full of ourselves and decided we need some fish and chips by about nine thirty. So off we went in some boys' cars and took our bottles of spumanti and got a bit game, sitting there in the fish and chip shop having a few drinks. And anyway, then the police came, um, which was fine. I tried to jump the fence, but that didn't work for me very well at all. And, well, you actually um, tried to run off. Yeah, you? I tried to run off. And then, uh, yeah, so I got pulled up pretty quickly. You know, I think once you get the, give me that authority voice of stop, it was pretty much that sounded like my mother. So anyway, so we get in the police car, me and my dearest girlfriend, we get in the car and uh, she's carrying on anyway. And I'm thinking, beauty, because I had this bottle of passion pop still. I had a big jacket on and a big japara. And I'm like, how am I? gonna get rid of this without So I put it under the the police car, right, while they were dealing with her. Anyway, I didn't put it on far enough, so when they took off, the bloody tie went over the passion pop bottle and <laughs> splat, well, that was the end of that. This copper stopped the car, drove me out of the car, ripped my head off, and, uh, yeah, and then they went and locked us up for three hours. They could do that back then, which was, was a good thing. They won't do it with the kids anymore, but I can tell you now. It was a bit of a warning, uh, so that was my first experience of police. And was there grounding from your mum after that? Oh, yeah, I remember going... I had to go to court for that. So Was I that scary? Could, Yes, it was. Yeah, and obviously I had to, you know, I had to do this on a couple of occasions, so it didn't quite scare me enough the first time, but <laughs> But, um, you know, I remember standing in court and just getting a smack on the wrist and and, and whatever else. So my poor mother, she went through hell and high water when I was growing up, there's no doubt about that, but um, she was persistent and uh, I'm sure, you know, like she says to me now, at times I was that worried about you, once the army grabbed hold of you, I knew that was it, that was great, I could pass you off. That's a nice way of putting it. Can you turn up girl on. The gun.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you had a bunch of different jobs as a teenager. Where was the first place you worked?
1: Um, so when I was about, I think I was twelve. Um, I'm a Rotarian now, which is quite bizarre. I've been for about five or six years because I used to serve them. We used to go down. I think I got paid twenty dollars, and that was a lot of money. So I just go down and clear the tables. That was my first job. By thirteen, I was working out in the pits at the speedway, serving um, the men out there. We which was which a was great experience. By the time I was 14 three-quarters, I was working at Kmart um, after hours, and then I, I sort of, uh, from there, went over to what is now um, Woolworths, or we used to call it Foss back then, in um, purity supermarkets in Tasmania. Um, and then from there, you know, by 17, I was... Back then, you could change your age on your birth certificate. but we didn't have all this... You just put a bit of Tipex on it and recopy it. <laughs> Anyway, so I was working the bars, lots of money to be made in those bars. So... Why did you get sacked from your first bar job? Yes, I did, because um, there was a gentleman that was in charge. He was a manager, and uh, there was one night we um, had a blow-in. Anyway, I threw a drink over him, so he sacked me, so that was the end of that. But that was okay, because... And he was, excuse my expression, he was an ass. He was just one of those male chauvinist things that I don't like very much. Um, anyway, but that was all right because the another nightclub took me straight on, so that was pretty good. You went up to the Northern Territory for oh, yes. a year. What work did you do up there? So I, because I was starting to get, I did Year 11, but I wagged more Year 11 than what I did Year 11, and my mum basically just said to me one day, you either get out or go and just change your life around. I was hanging around a really wrong crowd and and all that. Anyway, my I had some very dear friends of mine that I'd grown up with when I went to primary school. They were living in the Northern Territory in Catherine, and their mum and dad, I was very close to, said, rightio, you need to come up here. So off I went up to Catherine. Oh, my goodness. I left Tasmania. I had my duffel coat on. I lived in Darwin, got off the plane and went, oh, <laughs> that was a shock that was so but I think even going to Catherine um Catherine was an eye-opener for me I didn't have a lot of Indigenous experience even though we have Indigenous in Tasmania I remember watching them build them new houses and in the 12 months that they were built and by the time I'd left they'd been pulled down I watched what was going on in Catherine and I used to work behind the Catherine Hotel Motel if anyone knows what that is, and it's got the the back bar and everything out at the back, and if there's a roughest pub you can work in, it would have to be the Catherine Hotel Motel. So I look, I watched and seen what was going on with the Indigenous very early, so that got
0: my attention. See how all of these experiences set you up for the Senate, actually, Jackie, when you list them like this. (laughs) Had you thought about joining the Army, or was that on your radar as an option for, for the future when school wasn't working out?
1: No. After my court experiences, I decided I should be a policeman. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Anyway, um, so so that's when I was going back to year 12. I was going back to year 12 and finished year 12. So I did my my gap year and then I went back. All my friends had left and I'd grown up considerably during that 12 months, best thing I ever did. I went back and I started really hard and I was doing actually really, really well. And then I was looking for another part-time job um, after school to do down there. And a couple of myself and my, of my girlfriends, we went down to Centrelink or Social Security back then, um, and the big Green Army bus, I call it the Kermit Frog bus, was parked outside. And anyway, I was pretty keen on this and, you know, I I thought my girlfriends were pretty keen on this too. So off we go. We go in there and and we've got a great uh, recruiting instructor in there or... um, and he says to me, Here, you just need to sign this. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm smiles, all three of us. We're all going together as a pact, you know, we're a team. I sign my bit, give it back. He gives them theirs, and they say, No, thank you, and did a runner and did the bolt on me, left me sitting there. I was near begging this defence um, bloke to give me back my piece of paper because I didn't want to go. And he said, We're low on female numbers, darling, and I can see it'll do you the world of good. <laughs> that was it. Sent for training, so I was like everybody else. Um, I went to uh, Kapooka, and um, we we ended up doing sixteen weeks there because we were over the Christmas period. So we ended up doing a couple of extra duties weeks, and then so it was nearly a, it was a really long time at due to twelve weeks in and out, so we had sixteen weeks which was really great, but I can remember ringing my mother during the third week, and we're all about the same, and I, I rang, because we weren't allowed a phone call, it had to be 21 days two. you could have your first phone call, and you had one. So I rang my mum saying, oh my God, I just broke down, so you've got to get me out of here, you've got to get me out of here, and she goes, no, you'll be right, you'll do the world of good and hung up on me, and that's, <laughs> yeah, that's my mother. <laughs> Anyway, because my father always says he takes the mickey out of her and says, you should have rang me, I would have got her out of
0: there. (laughs) And he would have bloody done too. What was it that was so hard? What were those first 21 days like? Oh, well, you know, I was pretty undisciplined, so to say the
1: least. And I think it was just a shock, even though my mum had been quite disciplined with me and we'd always had structure in our lives... This was just, we were all feeling, we are all young, you know, looking at 17 to 19, 20-year-old women in there and, and all of us wanted to leave that day. So, but we are really lucky. We didn't lose anyone. We had an all-female platoon, first one without a brother platoon. We did it all ourselves, and we're a small group of 24. They do ask you in that 10th week before you're finished or in the 12th week for us. They give the option, you can actually walk, but by then you're already institutionalised, so it's too bloody late. But, yeah, they've got it worked out, the army, I can tell you. <laughs> did
0: you have the army haircut?
1: Yes, I did, I, because I couldn't put mine in a bun, properly so what they did was I had this little bit here and I had a number two all through here was disgraceful (laughs) you know I could have gone and done heavy metal it was that bad but um yeah so we did all that but there was girls I remember them crying because I couldn't get it up in a bun in 30 seconds and make it look tidy and just cut straight off
0: (laughs) besides the haircut how tough was the training what were you doing physically I'd been doing a
1: bit of physical stuff before I went in there but of course um I got fitter as I was going in there, but we'd also realised by the time I was finished that I had been pregnant before I actually started going through my military training. Yeah. Did you have
0: any idea when you no. joined up?
1: No, I had no idea, and we had your own um, tests and that done. We all get that done. My son's now 25, or 26, Bretton is. Um, they did that twice, these tests and on the second one when I went back and said something's not wrong I'm not getting my monthlies and they go yeah but a lot of people a lot of women because of the stress and everything and I'm thinking you know what I used to work in the Catherine Hotel Motel back (laughs) bar you know and uh, you know I just play a lot of sport and uh, do all this horse riding I've never missed them they're always on time they're a blessing in disguise Anyway, so they said, you're just trying to get out, off you go. And I go, okay, then. So, yeah, so that's how that all started. So I've been carrying this little... But he would have been about... I would have been about two weeks pregnant. They worked out when I went in there. So how did you finally get confirmed that you were pregnant? Yeah, so um, as soon as we left Kapuka, and it was in the last week when I was marching out, and I was saying to the corporals then, because you start getting really close to each other, and I'm going... Because I went on Christmas leave, and then... That that two weeks really started to show then, and I just said something's not right here. And they go, no, you'll be right. It'll be okay. You know, I'm the one. All the girls are getting their pants taken, in and mine are starting to stretch out. And I'm thinking, I'm doing all this physical training. What's going on? So when I left Kapuka, I went down to the Army School of Transport because I was I was going in as transport driver, and within the week there, I just said something's wrong here. You know, I, I haven't had my monthlies for well over four months, and they went, what? And I went, yeah. Look, there's something wrong here. You know. By then, I was really sorry.
0: Well, I had this beautiful corporal,
1: and she was gay. And she goes, "Oh my God, I don't have bloody deal with this." And I've got men going, "How has this happened? How has this happened?" I don't, know, I don't know. It's a blessing from God. I mean, you know. I tell you what, it was even more amusing watching the generals try to deal with this young woman that was in their quarters, because the first thing that they want to do is their first reaction was get rid of her get rid of her, get her out. Not my mother. My mother, you do that, I'm going to sue you. <laughs> this is my mother. No idea about legalities. That's, that was her first phone call. When my mum's angry, you don't want to deal with her, you just nod. So I imagine those generals would have got the tone of that. So, but how um, were you feeling like when you got the news that you were, what, 18 uh, I, and, and pregnant? It was a lot to take in. I remember um, I rang, Ma- I think I rang mum first and uh, she just, they We're all in shock and she said, okay, just give me a few minutes. And so then I rang dad and dad goes, oh, you need to ring your mother, I can't deal with this. <laughs> anyway, this went on for 48 hours and then the army and their wisdom decided, um, yep, yeah, no, this is probably gonna end up in the papers. This is not good, we can do this. So, But the good thing is with me doing this was that They let me do my driver's course. Back then, women, once they were pregnant, couldn't do courses. So within the next two years, this opened it up for everybody. Females in the military can now go and do courses. You know, like, I mean, somebody tell the men that years ago we were putting the bloody draft horse in the paddock and having our babies on the bloody potatoes just about. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, it it was a good thing. It was a fair experience. And my son... We call him Baby Commando because he's already been... He had to go through Kapuka twice because he's in the army now. (laughs) Not satisfied he'd already done it once, they have to make him do it
0: twice. So um, so it all worked out very well. So, so. you decide to stay in the army let you. What trucks were you learning to drive? Yeah, so once
1: the army settled down over the pregnancy thing, they realised that they, you know, because I was training there and that they knew who I was and about my circumstances, they'd bring me back there and post me there, which was very smart of them. That worked quite well. So I did everything from, um, I, from bus to motorbike. I hold the most records on a two-week motorbike course. I come off over 57 times. <laughs> I burn out three clutches. <laughs> I'm great, don't put me on the sand on those, but put me on a horse any day they were just trialling these females on Mack trucks. I think there was me and my girlfriend, we were the first couple to see whether or not we could, like a woman can't drive a truck. Uh, Anyway, so they I remember, uh, they hadn't picked who was going to do it yet and chime as guinea pigs and I was driving, I was filling in as a driver for the commanding officer. He was very conservative, very upper class and he said to me, you don't like driving me around, do you? And I said with all due respect sir, I didn't join the army to be a bloody chauffeur. (laughs) And then he got out and slammed the door. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. Anyway, I'm all about being honest, you know. There's some things you shouldn't say sometimes, but it just sort of come out of my mouth. (laughs) So I drive back down to the transport yard, and here's the sergeant, the two corporals, and the warrant officer standing outside like this, and I'm thinking, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Anyway, get out of the car, say, g'day. And they go, well, it seems you're starting your Mac course on Monday. If you don't want to drive the commanding officer around, he said, you might as well be out there driving dirty diesel trucks. So I said, beauty. So there was me. There was another girl that was shorter than me. We had two lots of pillars behind because then the seats didn't move any longer. Oh, was sitting there. I had it. Oh, you People would have been glad you weren't on Great Ocean Road when we were driving those Mac trucks around.
0: Very scary. But um, What was yeah. the nickname given you in that driver's course while you were pregnant?
1: Oh, that was when I was pregnant, actually doing my, that was when I did my initial uni, mod course. They, the men, the corporals there, they were, all, they were all men. I didn't have female corporals. They were wonderful. They all had grandchildren. They were older cohort and they used to call
0: me the soldier with spare parts. LAUGHTER but baby Brenton came out of this extraordinary um, precursor to his life all well and happy. But you were there with, as a single mum posted to Darwin. How did you
1: cope in those first months, Jackie? That first few months, um, we went back to Pukapunil to the Army School of Transport. My mum came with me for about five weeks while we got settled in. I obviously was given a married quarter. But it wasn't just that I had... Um, a lot of the... Some of those other girls that have been doing their courses were also posted there, so they knew about me, and we'd become really good friends. So when I had duties, when Mum left, they'd come and pick up Breton, and they didn't have cars either, so they'd take my car, and sometimes they'd come and take Breton if they went down to the market to borrow the car on a Sunday. I said, it'll take... Cos Brenton was very easy, Now hardly ever cried. You know, just give him a McDonald's burger. He was good. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so I was very, very lucky. And I had a lot of companionship around at that time. People were just really good. Transport drivers in the armed forces are really good people. It's when you go up to the higher echelon that it starts to get a bit more difficult.
0: But, you know, I've got to love truckies. After you were posted to Darwin, you had another child with your then-partner, John. You and um, John and your boys then moved to Inogra Barracks in Brisbane and you put your hand up for the military police. There was a corporal there that you didn't get on too well with. What happened with him? Yeah, I've got this problem with men.
1: Anyway, hence that's why I'm single. Um we went on our military police course and uh, back then you could go on as a private, some already had their full two um, hooks uh, and he was picking on a girl all course and then one night, as we we're all having drinks as we do, culture of the armed forces, and uh, he tried to lay down the rules. Now we were told from day one it doesn't matter what rank you got, you're all treated exactly the same everybody will treat each other exactly the same, rank was all taken out. So... Anyway, he decided um, after I won't say what I said to him because I would not say that. But um, there was a few words exchange more from me, and then he said, "That's it. I'm arresting you. I'm walking you down to the jail." I'm the only military police person that's been walked down to the jail and put in there for three hours. But and were there uh, that consequences
0: led for that. Like what happened no, to you? No, not
1: then. But there were consequences because they posted us both to the same unit. And then, of course, um, I had Dylan. And I, I look back. I think with Dylan, I may have had a bit of the baby blues and stuff like that. I was also going through a separation once again, we were out somewhere two months to drink, he said something and that's it, I just went the big one well, you know, don't I can't swing at the best of times, so you know, I didn't leave a scratch on here, I broke my little finger and ended up losing um, a stripe for that and being charged so, um, you know I think that, uh, yeah I'm quite popular with the females in the military place a bit of a badge of honour for me, apparently they're pretty proud that someone was able to do that, I'm the only one with that record too by the way <laughs>
0: Jackie, it's so clear that you don't like being ordered around. So, why on earth did you join the army?
1: (laughs) I think the army. I don't regret my time in the army. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, and people quite often say to me, you know, what's is it better, you know, do you get more out of being a politician or do you get more out of being in the armed forces? I said, oh, no, it doesn't even measure up to what you get out of the armed forces. It's, a, it's the mateship. It's the. It's everything that Parliament is not, you know. It's all about them taking your mates standing next to you. They'd take around for you. In Parliament, they'd stab you in the back as soon as well. You wouldn't even need to turn around. They're already there. <laughs>
0: it's very, very opposite. So did that... That version of discipline, that hierarchy, did it change you, do you think? Did you come out with different qualities than you went in? Yeah, once I stopped trying to
1: rebel against that the first five or seven years and worked out this was not going to help me and I could do things very differently, uh, that's when I really started to excel. So once I actually got busted and lost my stripe and they sent me on a compassionate posting and so they could I was struggling, they sent me back to Tasmania for 12 months. I think the military police were hoping to, God, I'd just discharge and go away. Anyway, I said, no, 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 no. I'm coming back because I needed to know whether or not I had what it took to be military police and being a combat unit. And I went back and blitzed it. You
0: uh, were scheduled to go with the Army to East Timor in 1999.
1: What happened? So my back had been playing up for about two, two and a half years. I'd had well over 200 physio sessions. I'd been living off and on painkillers. Um, doing a bit of doctor shopping, you know, because the last thing you want to be doing if you're not out there, matching it up with the men, it slows your, your progression down for rank and promotion, which is a massive issue. And if the Army gets a hold of it and they're still doing it, they'll throw you out this is what goes on, still goes on, of taking a lot of medication, dulling the pain and just saying, I'll be right, I'll be right, it'll go away, to a point where I was very excited to go to East Timor, wonderful, finally nearly 10 years in the Army, going to see some action, yep, not sit and wait. And um, they went to put a flat jacket on me about 24 hours beforehand, and when the boys put it on me, I suppose they got it here and just sort of let it go. That was enough. That just dropped me down to the ground. And then obviously there was a medical officer around and said, whoa, whoa, look at your file, it's massive. Have you been getting through this? And I'd been spending the last six months after physical training, I'd be laying on the floor in the bathrooms in bloody tears. So I was putting on a big show and it was only going to come out. I was in denial. I was basically in denial. And had I have just stopped for three months or six months like I should have done and got them to medically downgrade me for a little while, I probably would not have had to go through that 10 years with Veterans Affairs, but I didn't because that's just the way you're taught. You keep going. You keep going until you drop. All that mentality is put inside you.
0: You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So when it was clear to your Army superiors how bad your back was, what did that mean for your
1: Army career? I just thought, okay, I've done me 10 years, I'll get my long service, I'll get out and I'll just have a year where I can repair myself and the Department of Veterans Affairs will help me out, there'll be no rows about that, and I'll get back on my feet. And so be the case, I'll either stay in civilian life or come back in. That was my delusional thought about the whole process. But when I went to discharge, they were very. I had a great officer in command at the time, and you could see I was struggling. There was no problem with my discharge. We did that very, very quickly, and the Army did a really, really good job of that. It was a day that I got discharged when Department of Veterans Affairs took over that my issues really, really started. What didn't they do that
0: you needed them to do?
1: Um, Well, first of all, when you get medically discharged and then veterans says, well, there's nothing wrong with you, even with a folder that's this big and saying that there's nothing wrong with you, we call it delay, deny, die, because that's what they do. They delay everything, then they deny it, and then this is why you're having veterans taking their own lives. I had to fight them for over seven years and that was before I got my first win and then we went back into fight two years again after that. And I can tell you now I still don't have been paid out for my back. That's another fight. So even though ten years out, I ended up with about thirty thousand dollars for a lot economic loss, and yet I was getting seventy-five percent of my wage. But that's it for ten years' worth is about thirty grand. So I'm still going about my back, and I suppose that'll come over the next few years. How bad was the pain, the physical pain? That was the worst in early two thousand, and then. Um, I was in a very short-term relationship as well, which wasn't working out, and I was trying to raise two children. Um, I had no money. How uh, are you and I you supporting yourself? Um, so I went into uh, Centrelink and told them what was going on, and then I went and had a review by the GP and the doctor in there, and he said, well, you've, you need disability support pension. You're not on a single mother's pension. I don't understand. So I've got one department saying you're stuffed, and the other government department saying, no, there's nothing wrong with it. That's how it works. So it was Centrelink um, that paid... I just lived on a, a disability support pension for about seven years before I got them to court. Mind you, when I got pay, back paid 75% of my wages, That all that money went back to Centrelink. But that's how my, my kids and I survived. And how are you spending your days during that time? So my days consisted of the only thing that I prided myself on was making sure that my children had a decent lunch and they always had decent meals because it was one of the only things that I could do. Most of my days were just watching the clock go by. you know. And after doing that for seven years or eight years, you become quite an empty human shell, I can assure you. There's not much keeping you going. Were you still taking a lot of painkillers? Oh, yeah, I was off my head. I was taking whatever they could give me. I'll be honest with you, whatever I could get my hands on I was doing and then a bit further on to that, I started drinking and then I went to AA and didn't drink for two years and then that started the build-up of drinking again because it was just an, a damn nightmare. You were involved in a car accident in 2009. What happened? What happened? So I got to a point where we got through the court in 2007 and the appeals court said you've got to pay her back and start looking after her. Then they found me some return to work with Nick Sherry, which was very good of him to give me a go. And I was getting a lot of Botox in my back then. I'm not sure but people with migraines and that are now finding great relief from it as well. The doctor that was finally starting to get some progression on my back died in a skiing accident. Then Veterans Affairs said, oh, it's too difficult, we can't get the Botox to Tasmania. Great big department with all those doctors up the top and they can't find Botox and get it to Tasmania. So therefore I started to deteriorate really, really quickly again. And then it just... this, And I just thought, I can't go back through this. I couldn't get the doctors. I couldn't get the pain management specialists because their health system was so bad down there. It's still bad with pain management down in Tasmania. It's not flash. Um, and in the end, I just... I gave up. I just... I was just an empty human shell. There was no life left in me. There was nothing. And uh, one night, it was just one thing that set me off, and uh, I walked out in front of a car. I'd had enough. I just couldn't do it anymore. Three weeks beforehand, I'd already written my boys' notes and just let them know whatever was left they could have, not that there was anything there. But you just get to a point where, you know, you don't feel like you're a good mother. You've got nothing to offer society, and you're actually a burden on people, and that's where I was. I pushed all my family away. I hated everything in life. I couldn't stand it, and I just had no future. Mind Mm -hmm. you, after I did that, Veterans Affairs stepped up and actually helped me out. Look
0: where I am today, eh? (laughs) But after that accident, and you came to in a hospital, how did you get better from that Low, low point. Yeah, I think once you're standing there
1: and your sons and your father are standing in front of you and they've just got those blank looks on their face because you can see that they're hurting and they're tearing their hair out because they've had to walk alongside you now for nine years and watch all this play out. It was the help that I got afterwards that made me turn my life around. I remember sitting laying in hospital looking up at the ceiling going, listen, mate, what do you want from me. You've got the opportunity to take me. I look back in 2002 and I remember saying to, my, saying to God and saying to him, look, please make me better and I'll go in and do whatever I can for these veterans. I'll do whatever it freaking takes. I'll go into parliament, whatever. You know, that was a promise that I made to him and me.
0: So to me, it was a bit more personal. You ended up somewhere called the Hobart Clinic. What was that like and was it a help?
1: yeah so um, I can tell you now I had psychology all the way through I used to go and see um, my psychologist every three weeks without fail um, I did that religiously and I think that's I've probably done six seven hundred hours with psychology and psychiatry I mean I think that's why I've been able to recover that's why I'm a big supporter of people with mental illnesses please go and get help Um
0: you tried other less um, traditional avenues too. I think you visited a psychic healer above Pease's shoe shop
1: in Devonport. Oh, yeah, I've tried it. I've put stinky stuff on my back, you name it. I have gone to healing hands. I even went to church one day and I was in a big huddle of tears and uh, I'm not sure whether it was a priest or an archbishop or whatever and he said, listen here, Take this, this is God's cloth. I was very excited about this. He said, Keep it very close to your heart. So I used to put it down in my bra. I did that for six months, right? i not feeling the love, not feeling the love. <laughs> Anyway, I think it was all about the whole belief thing. I even went and did hypnotherapy and all that sort of stuff. I have tried it all, I can assure you. And how's your back now? Um, I'm not doing all those hours. I was doing obviously in Parliament at the moment so my back's been quite good. It is the longest it's ever been without shots. It's been a year and a half without having um, shots and I'm in a pretty pretty good space. I think too, I put 15 kilos on that three years I was in Parliament, which didn't help my back. I've got it quite below so I dropped that really quickly, late last year once I finished in Parliament, because I can understand why they call them bloody fat cats, got nothing to do with the cash. You
0: see, they'd blow up. Hazard of the job. Those years that you spent at home unhappy, in pain, taking painkillers, drinking too much wine, you started thinking politics. How did that enter the frame? Well, I was nuts at the time, obviously.
1: I actually fit in there quite well. I keep saying to them, I think they're all nuts up there, because I get on with them really well. So there's got to be something in there. I mean, how much did you know about politics or how Parliament worked? No, I didn't or know No, I didn't, care. no I, didn't even, I didn't know the difference between the lower house, the upper house. I didn't know what a rep was. And even on the first day, I go, what's this thing? You know,
0: so... Um, what was it then? What was it that made you want to get involved with that?
1: Oh, they just... Um, I was just so disappointed in the way that... I just figure fetchens Affairs is running like this. Every other government department must be very bloody similar, and they are. They're not running efficiently at all. You know, we have public servants up there that have been in there for too long. You can't sack them. Uh, You know, so it's a really bad culture of uh, just not getting things done up there. And I knew very early on the only way I could help my mates, we've got all these service organisations out there that stand up for veterans and are not getting anywhere. We have to be inside the pie. We have to be in there to make a difference, and you do have to be in there to
0: make a difference. It must have seen a very unlikely next step though, I mean, to you, did you tell your mum what reaction did she have when you said that was what you were (laughs) going to do? Well,
1: um, it was like this, right? Because I sold my house and I had about 100000 bucks, and I said, I'm just going to run on this, the kids are older now, and they're all going... They were going, you know, on one side they were going, they were trying to be nice about it and say, this is great, this will help you rehabilitate. And yep, yep, yep. But you could see they, they thought there was no way in hell she's making this seat. So there was a lot of encouragement because they could see it was helping me, even being out there, even though I didn't have a seat, but just being out there and talking to people, they could see that that was helping me to recover. So, were but they, they didn't expect me to win a seat. Were they worried that, say, you didn't get elected, that it, you'd spiral down? Oh, but, yeah, of course, you know, and that bothered them. And it always does and you could even see when I lost my seat last last year them all come in like that because they they're very careful with that. I mean I am quite I'm quite good, like I said. I've had a lot of therapy over the years and been in and out of a psych unit over a two year period. I I don't have a problem, I'm tough enough, but yeah, you can see sometimes when things happen and they go, oof, we'll just cover her. You know, that first year in Parliament, when it was really tough and I was like a bloody wrecking ball, well actually it wasn't like I was a wrecking ball, um, and you'd have all those things in the paper and that, and they were worried about what impact that was having on me, and I'm worried about what impact it's having on family, and I, my, my brother, this is how good they are, my brother runs a business, he lost some contracts through his business from that. Of course, he's made up for that now. But, um, you know, they wouldn't let me know any of that. So I'm just, they just kept saying to me, you'll be right, you'll
0: find your way, you'll find your way, you'll always find your way. So you decided to run for Senate in 2012 with really no team around you. You moved to Bernie, but you had a car. Tell me about the, the car that you used as part of your campaign. Oh, yes, my car had a little Audi.
1: It was beauty. They wanted 15 grand for it. I bargained with him for three months, got it for eight. <laughs> laughing. Anyway, it was my little Audi. What was the uh, number plate? It was Lambie. (laughs) Just Lambie. It had Jackie Lambie all over it, and uh, the thing went everywhere. So we used to just drive it around, and I had been out there helping the Bernie Chamber of Commerce. Um, I'd also been starting to get uh, recognised for some of the things I was trying to bring out about veterans. I'd been with CWA for a few years before I joined Rotary when I was repairing myself, they came into my life for a couple of years so they were they were very lucky and I was they were very lovely and just sort of nurtured me back. They used to say I'm like a broken bird and that these women, they're the biggest women in the country and they will get me back on my feet and by god they were bloody right about that. They were great. How easily did the door knocking and the public speaking come to you? Oh my goodness, I tell you. <laughs> I, I was I don't put this on the resume on my resume and I'm pretty quiet about it but I was part of the Liberal Party for about six months. And um, it's not a selling point for me. And um, anyway, I had to because I went up for selection, because I needed to see what it was like. I needed to go to a state conference. I didn't care whose it was, and I needed to go through the selection process to see what it was all about. That's my army training. I remember sitting there and doing my speech at home, thinking, ah, blitz this, Christ, I used to stand on that drill square and tell 500 men, what to bloody do, what's the problem? Well, I got up there and went... I thought I was going to pass out after one page. I don't know... I knew I was never going to make it, but I just needed to go through the experience. So they were really good to me. I mean, I will not go to the Liberal Party that much, so i were going, say, OK, just calm down. You know, they could see that where I've been through and they understood that, and though I think they were keeping me for state. That's where they wanted me to go. I wasn't good enough to go to federal. A little bit like going in the army. They didn't think I was good enough for an officer either, but I would have been. I would have blitzed it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Around this time, Jackie, you went and saw a clairvoyant. What did she tell you? Yeah, so um, I went and seen a
1: clairvoyant and I said to her, there was a few questions I asked. I said, well, what party am I? Because by then I'd left the Liberal Party, went out as an independent uh, and just thought I was going to make it as an independent if I was. She said, you are going to make it into Parliament just. And I went, great, I'm going to go do this on my own two feet. What a, what a remarkable recovery, you know. And I said, so it'll be independent. She said, no. And I said, well, and I, so I named off Labor and I didn't worry about the greens because we weren't going there. And She said, I don't know what it is. She said, all I can see is all this yellow. There's just yellow everywhere. And I went, well, fair enough, righty-o. <laughs> so, yeah, there was yellow, all right. Palmer United. When did you put that yellow together with Clive Palmer? Well, when I ran out of money and thought, I need your money, Clive. So... Um, LAUGHTER Yeah, like I said, that $100,000 bucks was not going to go very far. So I nearly got to the end, but I just wasn't going to. And I think he'd realised that he, with his money injected in, because of all the work I'd already been doing down there and, and starting to get out and about, that we could actually win a seat in Tasmania. He flooded Tasmania, not so much with me, but with him and just yellow and black everywhere. I think Tasmania's learnt a really good lesson that year. They ended up with Palmer United Party or the sex party, take your bloody pick. So it seems I just come ahead. <laughs> What was that first day in the Senate like? What do you remember? Oh, I don't remember a lot of it, to be honest. Oh my goodness, it's so foggy. I just, um... did you feel intimidated? No, I feel intimidated when I get standing in front of university students to go figure because I just think that they always intimidate me because I just, I really praise them for going on, on with school um, and I always feel like, because I'm not educated, mine's life experience, that that's the only time I've ever been intimidated is when I walk into those
0: damn universities and they still do it to me. <laughs> What was it about the job, the sort of tin tax of the Senate that surprised you? What wasn't the way you'd expected it to be? Well,
1: because I didn't know what I was expecting, nothing was come as a surprise to me, so I think that probably played in my favour, because I had absolutely no idea what I was doing up there, near did Glenn Lazarus, by the way, so we were paired really well with me and Laz, but Do D-O-D, Do did, Dio Wang, he, uh, he was up on, you know, he was well-educated, he knew how the Senate ran and all that sort of stuff, so. So we had Dio which was really good but it was difficult that first 12 months and I made a lot of mistakes you know. and like I said it got to a point where Tasmanians wouldn't abuse me but they wouldn't look me in the eye either walking down the street and so that's quite shameful. Um, I nearly pulled the plug in February just after I'd left Palmer, Palmer United because I honestly believe that just maybe the little soldier girl didn't have it in her to be a politician. Um, you know, I remember speaking to my dad about it and my dad going, well uh, you'll be right. you just need more time, you need more time and go on with it and, I, and obviously I did need more time and as time's gone on I've been able to prove that even someone with my background, spending two years in and out of a a nut house can actually make their way into Parliament. So...
0: (laughs) While your political career was in full swing Jackie, what was happening at home with your son Dylan? Mm.
1: Yeah, so um, Dylan's a bit like his mother, he has got that black sheep in him. Um, Dylan's always been a a bit of a gypsy and and, and free spirit, and I I love him dearly. He's very compassionate. He'd stand in front of anyone and take around. That's my son, Dylan. Um, He'd been in trouble from the time he was 12 or 13. I'm not sure whether it's just because you get a bit slack with your second child, or I don't know what it is, but Dylan had been in and out of court. He had a fair rap sheet. Nothing ever terrible, spray painting or something stupid like that or bloody knocking someone's letterbox off or over you know just all that annoying stuff and then that started to build and um we started getting dylan good by the time he was 16 or 17 he left school in year nine he went to tafe as he was just starting to pick up and turn his life around which was happening quite well and it was he was doing really well he ended up getting knocked out of a nightclub and that caused an aneurysm around to the left side of dylan's brain so we nearly lost him So from that, Dylan never picked up from that to a certain degree. As much as we were trying to get him psychology and all the rest, he still had a lot of swelling for the next 12 months. Uh, He's pretty much got ADHD, so you've got to get him out there all the time. You know, I had the doctor said, I really don't want him going back to work. This was only three months later after this aneurysm. Uh, He said, I don't really want him going back to work. He's going to struggle. I said, well, I'm struggling with him at home because he's just about driving me nuts. And then it was all pretty much downhill from there. He lasted about eight weeks back in his job because he had no concentration span. It was just too soon after the accident. There was no conviction ever on the bloke that did it to her either, so he was really angry about that, that justice hadn't been served, and that just went like this and then he split up with his girlfriend he'd been with for a couple of years and just one thing led to another and it went from smoking bloody joints to ice pipes you know and then it was, then it become a real issue. Good thing is with me, Dylan wasn't on it for years and years, It sort of I think he, he tried it a couple of times but it was in that last six months and uh, you know I remember Dylan ringing me from Queensland just before I got up in the Senate, it was in May, I got up in the Senate I think in September and, and spoke about Dylan, it was in May, he rang me up and he's going, "Wait, what are you, what are you mum, what are you doing? I'm going, oh, what are you doing, mate? I'm in Queensland. I thought I'd come back through to Canberra and see, you know. Is <laughs> I'm going, mate, what's going on? What are you doing in Queensland? I said, all right, Mum, I've got a brand-new Mercedes and I'm driving it back. And what's in the bloody... What's in the boot, I said to him? And anyway, he just hung up on me. And I thought, oh, we've got a problem here. I knew straight away, so, you know, I'm not delusional. You'd be driving a new Mercedes Benz back from Queensland. What's in the boot of the damn thing? So for the next few months, without using my name, I rang Rehab Services and and whatever else, and uh, they weren't interested. um, And I was getting desperate in the end. I just didn't care. He was getting into trouble anyway. Um, He can see this now as much as he didn't like me beforehand. It was all coming out in the papers in the next few months because Dylan had been on charges. Got involved in the bikies. Seen Dylan coming a mile away. You know, so Dylan was really lucky because the magistrate gave him the choice, and this is why I love these courts that should deal with our kids. She said, you either go to rehab and you come out one minute before about 12 months, sounds like my mother, or I'm going to put you in jail for three months. And I just thank goodness, I had a good lawyer at the time, which is a very good friend of mine, and Dylan wasn't iced that day he went into court and we were able to get him out of there. But even then, I had to sit there for 10 days because he had to go out of state jurisdiction and go, come up here to Queensland go to Queensland because that's where Teen Challenge was. We then had to muck around with the court system up here. So I had Dylan out in the loose for 10 days. And I thought, oh, my God, what if he goes on an ice binge? He wouldn't come back home and stay with me. I think that was probably the worst 10 days of my life because I just didn't know whether he was ever actually going to make it into rehab. Thank goodness for Teen Challenge, but um, yeah, he made it into into rehab, 18 months he did in rehab, he ended up staying there for longer, I had to drag him out, I said, come on mate, time to get in the real world. (laughs) So he's now been clean for three years in November, he's held down a job for about 15 months and he's making a crap load of money and loves it. (laughs) uh,
0: And unlike his mother, he's found love, so God bless him. (laughs) In November 2017, Jackie, you became caught up in the dual citizenship saga. Did you have any idea that that was on the horizon
1: for you? No, goodness me. I, um, you know, when my dad came over here, he was uh, he was still in Naps. My grandfather came over here because he went straight into the armed forces. So we'd never thought about it. You know, you've got Indigenous in you, you know, your Tasmanian doesn't get much more bloody Aussie than that. And I went through the Liberal Party for selection. No-one picked it up. Well, you wouldn't expect Palmer, you know, i do it because I don't do any checks. But nobody ever questioned me. Nobody ever questioned me, not once, and I would never have even thought about it. Dad had become Australian citizen back in the early 2000s. Um, and I think when you see that lawyers, it took them a while to switch on to learn about it all, Section 44. I'm not sure that my father that did to Year 7 and I, you know, wagged most of my year 11 and 12. We, we just had no idea. And then, you know, I'm re- I think Mum and Dad were getting a sniff because I, I was at Derby Day and this was all happening over this weekend and I remember saying to Mum, Mum, does Dad have the paperwork? Because Dad said, yeah, I've got all the paperwork, I've dropped it into the lawyers. And, and anyway, it was nothing had it that was renounced, had everything else but nothing that said renounced. And I said to Mum, I said, Mum, please. And she said, and my Mum never does this, she goes don't worry about it just get on with it and I thought I'm gone she knows something (laughs) I knew it straight away yeah I think that was her first reaction yeah it's okay we've got what's under control nothing's under control mum so the derby day was an absolute wipeout I couldn't wait to get the races and get back and I need to get back to Tasmania within a week I had my um, confirmation come back that I was a dual citizen and out of parliament it was as simple as that after you gave your resignation speech in the Senate and you walked out of the chamber, what kind of reaction did you get from the other senators? It was a really lovely reception and, um, you know, it, it wasn't a show. I, I actually... A lot of them wrote me off, and they'll tell you that, when I first come in that first year too, I thought, oh, my God... But if they can see somebody's working really hard and turning things around and making their way through something, um, you know, then they'll show you the respect for that. And I think that that was well and truly shown shown when I left, that I'd come from nothing and I'd made it way. And I think they actually felt probably a little bit for me, thank God, of all things to take out. I've been trying for bloody three years and this does it. <laughs> you know, so I think uh, it was a respect thing and um, I'm very grateful. And it made everybody look big in the chamber that day. You know, I wasn't going to leave without saying saying something in that chamber and resigning in front of what I would say are my peers. You want to go back into the Senate. Would you do anything differently another time around? No, I think um, I'd just done just over three years. I'd been through two elections. I had obviously run the last double D. I got six years in my own right. I was already starting to uh, go on all eight cylinders, I suppose. I'd finally got my staff worked out. We'd learned how it all worked pretty much up there. So it's just a matter of me going back up and picking that back up. But instead of me walking back in as a toddler, I'll be running this time on a bloody running track. So, you know, so that'll be the difference. None this, although I don't know anything, should be a bit different this time. So, Jackie, you
0: went on a TV dating show this year. How did you get involved? Why did you get involved? <laughs> Well, first of all, I never went into
1: any any in Parliament without with uh, money. Obviously, I had nothing left, and I was still paying debts for that first year. Um, so even when I, I left Parliament, I was never going to survive on much money, I can tell you that much. I didn't even have a car because I was using a, a government one. And when we walked out of Parliament, myself and Steve Perry, there was nothing. We walked out, no pay, no nothing. That was it. That was It was gone. There was nothing. And then when the dating show came up, they said, um, put it this way, i got the same as Barnaby without the other two zeros on the end of it. And I thought, beauty, uh, that'll keep me going and my credit card was starting to stack up. So I had no choice. I had to go and do something They were brutally honest with me Sunday night. They said, we don't really know where all this is going. It was supposed to be two weeks, and then we ended up doing five. So it just took a sort of path of its own. Um, Look, it was really good to have the opportunity to do that. I haven't dated in 17 years. You know, and those men were really, really nice. But my my, my point is that, you know, I don't want any distractions. I'm going 110% at this Senate seat because I need to know whether or not I'm going back in distractions, I just don't have time for them, the men can wait.
0: <laughs> what did your mum have to say about the TV show?
1: Oh no, I told her not to watch that. You know, to watch that. <laughs> no, she did end up watching that. She, uh, she said, I loved it, it was the sex toys that got me, though you probably could have left that bit out of it. <laughs> and I said to her, dear, you have never had that enjoyment before, have you, sweetie? <laughs>
0: Jackie Lambie. I feel there's so much more we could talk about, but our time has come to an end. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking Jackie Lambie. Jackie Lambie's memoir is Rebel with a Cause. I'm Sarah Konosky. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Konosky. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.